Mr. Darko. Ling Ling finds a wallet on the ground filled with money. She takes the wallet to the address on the driver's license and keeps the money inside the wallet. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Ms. Farmer, I don't get this. Just place an X on the lifeline in the appropriate place. No, I mean, I, I know what to do. I just, I don't get this. You can't just lump things into two categories. Things aren't that simple. The lifeline is divided that way. Well, life isn't that simple. I mean, y who cares if Ling Ling returns the wallet and keeps the money. It has nothing to do with either fear or love. Fear and love are the deepest of human emotions. Okay, but you're not listening to me. There are other things that need to be taken into account here, like the whole spectrum of human emotion. You can't just lump everything into these two categories and then just deny everything else. If you don't complete the assignment, you'll get a zero for the day. Donald, let me preface this by saying that your Iowa test scores are intimidating. So let's go over this again. What exactly did you say to Ms. Farmer? I'll tell you what he said. He asked me to forcibly insert the Lifeline exercise card into my... In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 232, Donnie Darko. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, hi, hello, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a regular returning listener of this podcast, whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. There are a lot of podcasts out there. We only have a certain amount of time in the day to listen to them. And I'm really grateful that you decided to listen to Verbal Diorama. And I'm so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of Donnie Darko. But before we get into that, I just want to say, as always, thank you so much to everyone who's listened to recent episodes of this podcast, or indeed any episode of this podcast. I am always so grateful for anyone who listens. But the most recent episodes were on Mamma Mia and also the Superman sequel quadrilogy. Yeah, I said quadrilogy because I did an episode on Superman 2, Superman 3, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace and the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2. So essentially it was a quadrilogy of films. And that's the first time I've ever done a quadrilogy of films on this podcast. And the feedback was so lovely. People were so taken with those Superman sequels and with the story behind those sequels specifically Superman 2 and the Donner Cut, because although it's no industry secret, the issues with Superman 2's production, I don't think many people really knew the entire story behind what happened with Superman 2. And obviously that then spilled over into Superman 3 and Superman 4, 
well, that's an entirely different beast altogether. And the history and legacy of Mamma Mia is just so fascinating. And the fact that we're still simultaneously enamoured with female-fronted cinema, but we also don't seem to show it a great deal of respect, which something like Mamma Mia absolutely deserves your utmost respect for generally being such a wonderful, heartfelt, joyful film. I love Mamma Mia so much. But it really seems to me like the first time a movie like this was shown a great deal of respect was this year when Barbie came along. But as I said in that episode, there's nothing that Mamma Mia did that Barbie doesn't do and vice versa. But as always, these episodes are a lot of work to put together, but they're also a lot of fun to put together. So I am eternally grateful for your support and for your ears listening to this podcast. And you know what? I'm just going to jump straight in to Donnie Darko, the cult classic, I should say, Donnie Darko, a movie involving a plane crash that came out a month after 9-11 and quickly faded into obscurity. Or did it? Because then people started to question its plot, talk about it with their friends, recommend it, and it turned into a huge cult favourite. And while it didn't make a hell of a lot of money at all on its initial release, it has since made a hell of a lot of money. But what does Christopher Nolan have to do with it? Let's take 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes and 12 seconds to find out. I am joking. It's not going to be that long. But here's the trailer for Donnie Darko. It was as though this plan had been with him all his life, pondered through the seasons. Now, in his 15th year, crystallised with the pain of puberty. So, why'd you move here? My mom had to get a restraining order against my stepdad. He has emotional problems. Oh, I have those too. What kind of emotional problems does your dad have? I met a new friend. Real or imaginary? You're tough, Tony. Imaginary. I'm going to tell you a little story today about a young man whose life was completely destroyed by these instruments of fear. I haven't seen stuff. Donnie is experiencing what is commonly called a daylight hallucination. <laughs> I have to obey him. He saved my life. Have you ever seen a portal? Has he ever told you about his friend Frank, the giant bunny rabbit? The what? Every living thing follows along set path, and if you could see your path or channel, then you could see into the future, right? I'm not going to be able to continue this conversation. Don't worry, you got away with it. What is going to happen? I only have a few days left before they catch me. Gonna stop. You should already know that.
Johnny Darko is a troubled teenager living in suburban Maryland. A schizophrenic with a history of violence, he has recently stopped taking his medication and as a result is sleepwalking. On the 2nd of October, he sleepwalks and meets Frank, a man in a menacing bunny costume. Frank tells him that in 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes and 12 seconds, the world will end. That night, a jet engine mysteriously crashes through the roof of the Darko's home, destroying Donnie's room. Frank continues to appear to Donnie and tells him he can do anything and won't get caught, and also tells Donnie about time travel. The sequence of events of Donnie committing arson on local self-help guru Jim Cunningham's home lead to Cunningham's arrest, and the local dance troupe Sparkle Motion have no chaperone to a local star search competition, meaning that his mother and younger sister are on the plane 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes and 12 seconds later, as it gets sucked into a time tunnel and the jet engine goes back in time, crashing through the roof of the Darko home. And if that synopsis made no sense, well, welcome to the world of Donnie Darko. Let's run through the cast. We have Jake Gyllenhaal as Donnie Darko, Holmes Osborne as Eddie Darko, Maggie Gyllenhaal as Elizabeth Darko, Mary McDonnell as Rose Darko, Davy Chase as Samantha Darko, Jenna Malone as Gretchen Ross, Drew Barrymore as Karen Pomeroy, Noah Wiley as Dr. Kenneth Monitoff, Patrick Swayze as Jim Cunningham, James Duval as Frank the Rabbit, Catherine Ross as Dr. Lillian Thurman, Patience Cleveland as Roberta Sparrow, Seth Rogen as Ricky Danforth, and Stuart Stone as Ronald Fisher. And Donnie Darko was written and directed by Richard Kelly. So the story of Donnie Darko starts with a news report on a chunk of ice falling from the wing of a plane and crashing into a boy's empty bedroom. And this would make the young Richard Kelly, growing up in suburban Richmond, Virginia, ask the question, what is that kid thinking? Does he think some higher power is out to get him? Because you have to have some amount of luck to not be in your bedroom when a huge chunk of ice falls from the sky. In the late 90s, Kelly was a recent graduate of USC School of Cinematic Arts, working as a client assistant at 525 Post-Production in Hollywood by night, but by day he was working on his graduate student film Visceral Matter alongside producer Sean McKittrick, and once that was done, decided to write a feature-length screenplay. But instead of a piece of ice, it would be the actual jet engine of a plane that would get ripped off, but what if that happened and they never found the plane and they couldn't figure out where this random engine had come from? And it then happens to land in this kid's bedroom. That script was called Donnie Darko. It was set in the 1980s, had a first draft 145 pages long, which Kelly trimmed 10 pages of, a coming-of-age science fiction, time travel, psychological period thriller. You'd think it wasn't a particularly easy sell, but while the script got plenty of initial interest from studios, no one was willing to take a chance on a genre-bending, trippy script from a 25-year-old writer and wannabe director. That didn't mean Richard Kelly didn't meet plenty of interested parties along the way. Francis Ford Coppola, Ben Stiller, Bill Hallberg and Betty Thomas, each of them humoured him as he told them he wanted to direct this movie. Speaking of Coppola, his nephew Jason Schwartzman had made his film debut in Wes Anderson's Rushmore in 1998 and had come across the script for Donnie Darko and was interested in the role of Donnie after Vince Vaughan passed on project. Having Schwartzman interested gave the project legitimacy and the script landed in the lap of Nancy Javonen, the producing partner of Drew Barrymore. And I've spoken about my love for Drew Barrymore on this podcast several times, recent strike behaviour notwithstanding. 
And back in the late 90s, Flower Films, Barrymore and Javona's production company, was just starting out. In fact, Barrymore was working on Charlie's Angels at the time and invited Richard Kelly and Sean McKittrick to the set to meet her and Nancy and discuss Donnie Darko, which was tonally totally unlike Charlie's Angels or their first production, which was Never Been Kissed. But with Flower Films on board, Kelly was able to get Donnie Darko funded at a modest $4.5 million. But before filming could begin, they had a problem. It was either retain Drew Barrymore, who'd agreed to star as English teacher Karen Pomeroy, as well as produce, or they could keep Jason Schwartzman, who was now committed to another movie. They had to go into production in the summer of 2000, or they'd not only lose Drew Barrymore, the actor, but also Drew Barrymore, the producer, and the clout that Drew Barrymore, the producer, gave them. So Schwartzman bowed out due to scheduling conflicts, leaving them not very long to find a new Donny. Patrick Fugit and Lucas Black were considered, but a very young, very emo, 19-year-old Jake Gyllenhaal had been mesmerised by Kelly's script. It reminded him of his own adolescence, minus the talking to a grown man in a bunny suit, and everyone agreed he was the perfect Donny. He suggested his older sister Maggie for the role of Donny's older sister Elizabeth, as they were competitive siblings who could easily play competitive siblings. Jake Gyllenhaal was a young guy but insanely professional and understood the emotional arc of Donnie. Despite being unable to shoot the movie linear, Gyllenhaal kept the required levels of intensity. It wasn't scripted how he would speak to Frank the Rabbit. It was Gyllenhaal who suggested the chin-down stare with a babyish voice. And for a tiny $4.5 million weirdo movie, it's got one hell of an established cast, including Patrick Swayze as self-help group Jim Cunningham, Noah Wiley as science teacher Kenneth Monitoff, our president, if you know, you know, Mary McDonald as Rose Darko, and Catherine Ross as Dr. Lillian Thurman, joining the likes of the Gyllenhaals and Jenna Malone as Gretchen Ross. Even Seth Rogen turns up in his film debut. Getting these big names was purely down to having Nancy Javonen involved, with Patrick Swayze particularly looking to do something different and to take a risk. Screen icon, Academy Award nominee, and BAFTA and Golden Globe winner Catherine Ross was in semi-retirement and hadn't worked for a few years, but really wanted to play the part of Dr. Thurman. McKittrick and Kelly didn't have to persuade her at all. McKittrick would say about the experience in a piece for The Ringer, quote, We were totally green, completely out of our depth, but we were smart enough to hire good people, unquote. And that was true not only of the cast, but also the crew. Richard Kelly was an inexperienced filmmaker, but someone who was willing to take advice and help from industry professionals. And so they set out to hire industry veterans who could not only provide all of that support, but also make the best movie possible. And that started with the visuals. Director of photography, Stephen Poster, costume designer, April Ferry, and Alec Hammond, the production designer. But Kelly also had a very specific vision, shooting in anamorphic, where the image is squeezed onto the 35mm negatives. It would need more lighting and equipment, but Poster knew of a new Kodak film stock that was more sensitive and would eat up the night deficit. Anamorphic would mean not seeing ceilings in shots, and so the ceilings could be utilised to include more lighting. It was an ambitious shoot, not just for 20-somethings debut feature, but the schedule itself was relentless, and Alec Hammond, the production designer, learned the hard way when it came to the jet engine just how much preparation goes into a shot like that. Bear in mind too, this was the summer of 2000 before 9-11 and no one had any issue with the imagery of an aircraft going down or people potentially being killed by one. £35,000 jet engine could be bought for $10,000 
but actually showing it smashing through the set was a one-shot only deal, and it had to be done to precision. The jet engine shell was rigged above the set with this air pressure gun that was going to launch it down through the set. Everyone told Richard Kelly that random parts don't just fall off aeroplanes in mid-flight. That was until it actually happened on the 27th of August 2000, midway during production. A KLM flight made an emergency landing at LAX after a dishwasher-sized engine part reportedly fell off the Boeing 747 onto a nearby beach. At this point, everyone on the crew is believing that Richard Kelly is some sort of prophet. And rabbits are supposed to be all cute and cuddly, not severe nightmare fuel. But Kelly had designed his idea for Frank, and this wasn't going to be the Easter Bunny. He wanted disturbing and animalistic. Nothing else like it has ever existed on screen, and when it was on set, it seriously affected people. Like seeing Michael Myers in real life. Seeing Frank the Rabbit made an impression at Loyola High School in downtown LA where they were filming certain key scenes. There were only three rabbit masks ever made. One is owned by Jack Morrissey along with the costume. The others are owned by Kirk Hammett, the guitarist for Metallica, who found it for sale at auction at a Comic-Con and outbid everyone for it. The final mask sits in Nancy Giovanna's house, chromed as a gift to her. Speaking of scary rabbits, remember that moment in Bill and Ted's bogus journey with the Easter Bunny? Well, Keanu Reeves does. And that is the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. If you don't know what that is, that is a part of this podcast where I link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And that is what I have just done by linking the rabbit in Bill and Ted's bogus journey to Frank the Rabbit. Ah, uh, yes, I am very proud of that. So the music of Donnie Darko is integral to the 80s setting. But even then, the rights to the music were not guaranteed. Sparkle Motion originally performed to Pet Shop Boys, West End Girls, not Duran Duran's Notorious. Notorious was chosen as it has a similar beat and was cheaper to license. One of the production's biggest challenges was getting Tears for Fears head over heels. Drew Barrymore personally requested it from Kurt Smith, the co-founder of the band. Producer Tom Hayslip wasn't quite sure that it was a good idea to be basically shooting a music video with no dialogue to a song that they weren't even sure they were going to be able to afford. But Kelly put together a rough cut of the Tears for Fears sequence and that was all they needed to make it happen. After the movie's climax, in which Donnie sacrifices himself for the sake of the universe, there's a scene that looks in on several characters in their bedrooms. Because the producers couldn't afford to license another 80s pop song for this montage, singer Gary Jules and composer Michael Andrews collaborated on a stripped-down cover of a Tears for Fears song, which was originally going to be the U2 song MLK. Jules and Andrews were in a band together in high school and covered Mad World. It was a track they knew well and Andrews just rearranged it on the piano with Jules singing and they recorded the song in an hour and a half. They sang it over the phone to Nancy Javonen who loved it and while the original is more upbeat, their version was more in tune with the lyrics. The song Mad World was released on the 15th of December 2003 here in the UK and would beat the darknesses Christmas time, don't let the bells end, to the coveted Christmas number one, which, let me tell you, used to be a really big deal here in the UK. Not so much nowadays, but back in the day, getting the Christmas number one was a really big thing. The success of the song here in the UK didn't translate over to the US, however, charting at number 30 on the Billboard Modern Rock Track chart in 2004. On the 19th of January 2001, Donnie Darko premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. Alongside In the Bedroom, Dogtown and Zed Boys, Hedwig and the Angry Inch and Memento. And I'm going to be coming back to Memento or something about Memento shortly. 
Sundance typically wasn't for big budget movies and no one believed that Donnie Darko was made for $4.5 million. But usually exposure at Sundance would mean some kind of distribution deal. But not so for Donnie Darko. It would take about six months to secure a theatrical release. It almost went straight to video, with 30 minutes cut and no music, as they had yet to pay for the songs. Things weren't looking good for Donnie Darko. And then there was the controversy around Donnie's use of a gun so soon after Columbine. Executive producer Aaron Ryder worked at Newmarket Films and brought his bosses Chris Ball and Will Tyra in for a private screening. And speaking of Memento, invited Christopher Nolan and his wife, producer Emma Thomas. Through Nolan and Drew Barrymore, Newmarket agreed to buy the film and organise a theatrical release in a deal with IFC Films. A day of reshooting was scheduled to help clarify the bigger themes and rectify plot holes, filming with James Duval, and they committed to a Halloween 2001 release. And then, 9-11 happened. A movie featuring a plane crash was always going to struggle to find an audience during one of the worst tragedies of modern times. And when Donnie Darko was theatrically released on the 26th of October 2001, it premiered at the Egyptian Theatre in Hollywood, but it was a very subdued premiere. It would end up opening number 32 at the weekly US box office with a gross of just $164,000 over 58 screens. When its theatrical run ended on the 11th of April 2002, the film had grossed just $517,000. But there was more life in Donnie Darko. In March 2002, it came out on home video and became the cult movie of the season. College kids loved the premise, the fact that you had to think about it and be way existential, and the DVD began selling like hotcakes, with US sales alone topping $10 million. A website designed by Kelly would provide an interactive companion for viewers who wanted to decipher clues and figure out what the hell was going on with puzzles and secrets and never-before-seen information about the universe of the film, including information about the fate of many of the characters after the film ends. Following its release on home video in March 2002, the Pioneer Theatre in New York City began midnight screenings of Donnie Darko that ran for 28 consecutive months. Kelly continued to explore its mythology via the Donnie Darko book in 2003, and then there was a director's cut. Now, a director's cut isn't something usually given to what many would deem a flop, but due to the strong word of mouth, DVD sales, and regular midnight screenings, Bob Burney, the president of Newmarket, suggested a re-release of the movie theatrically, with Richard Kelly proposing a new cut of the movie instead. Newmarket agreed and Kelly was given $290,000 to create what he called his interpretation of the original film. The runtime of the director's cut was extended by 20 minutes by including a large number of deleted scenes that were previously available as bonus features on the DVD. In order to clarify some of the more unclear plot points in the movie, Kelly also overlaid passages from the in-universe book The Philosophy of Time Travel. In addition, digital effects were added, musical cues were altered or eliminated, and the sound quality was improved. The song Never Tear Us Apart by In Excess, which Kelly didn't have the rights to use in the movie's theatrical release, was used in place of The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen for the opening scene. On the 29th of May 2004, a sold-out screening of the director's cut took place as part of the Seattle International Film Festival. It received a wide release on the 27th of August 2004, three months after its Seattle premiere. Domestically, Donnie Darko, the director's cut, took a total of $753,000 at the US box office, 
and $3.7 million globally, including $2.8 million in Italy alone. After various re-releases over the years, it went on to gross $7.6 million worldwide, recouping its original budget. And while Donnie Darko was a financial failure, it was a critical success, with an 87% of Rotten Tomatoes, which climbed to 90% on the release of the director's cut. Retrospectively, the director's cut isn't seen as favourably, with the new soundtrack receiving criticism, specifically the decision to replace The Killing Moon. In an interview with the British music magazine NME, Ian McCulloch, the lead singer of Echo and the Bunnymen, branded Kelly a, quote, knobhead for making the change. And you may or may not know there is a sequel to Donnie Darko. It came out in 2009 and it's called S. Darko. It's set seven years after, centering on the now 18-year-old Samantha Darko, Donnie's younger sister. Sam is troubled by her brother's death and begins to have problems with sleepwalking, along with strange dreams that hint at an impending major catastrophe. The sequel received extremely negative reviews and has nothing to do with Richard Kelly, him having no control over the rights to Donnie Darko. He has not received a penny from the production either. He was never happy with the idea of a sequel and has never seen it. He has, however, talked about his own official sequel, inspired by a meeting with James Cameron in 2010. He announced it in 2017 and confirmed in 2021 that the script was being worked on, but since then, there has been no news. And there really is nothing quite like Donnie Darko. Not for its mind-bending plot, nor its cultural significance. It's one of those films of its time, of another time, that will likely never be made again. It took guts and determination to bring to the screen, and in many ways, Richard Kelly has never quite reached those high highs again. But the risks taken to make this need to be applauded. Jake Gyllenhaal was likely always destined for stardom, but his full range is on display here in Donnie Darko. And while it's one of those movies of its time, it's also one that warrants multiple rewatches just to fully understand what's going on. And maybe that is its enduring appeal. The fact that you can watch it and interpret it however you wish. And by talking to others, you not only spread the word and create that cult following, but also get new opinions on what it all could mean. It's a real shame this movie didn't seem to quite come out at the right time, but maybe it actually did. Maybe its destiny was to become a cult classic. In many ways, this movie is just like the teenage protagonist it highlights. Dark, moody, confusing, unpredictable, rebellious and complex. Maybe that's why so many college-aged people connected with it. It spoke to them in a way other media at the time just didn't. Maybe life as we know isn't really real. Maybe we are just following our own little blobs of goop. Maybe everything does exist on the line between fear and love. And maybe Donnie Darko could easily exist on both of those things. But sometimes I do doubt your commitment to Sparkle Motion. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Donnie Darko. And if you have enjoyed this podcast and you do want to help it grow, you can, you can get involved by leaving a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. You can find me on social media at Verbal Diorama, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky and Letterboxd, along with probably all of the others that have popped up at some point. Yes, I am still calling it Twitter, by the way. And on all of those places, you can find me, you can follow me, you can like my posts, you can share my posts, and that all helps too. Or you can simply tell your friends and family about this podcast. It's something I do on the regular, and I'm sure my friends and family are very annoyed with me about that. 
I can't really do any episode recommendations though, because there really is nothing in the Verbal Diorama back catalogue that's anything like Donnie Darko. But what I can do is I can tell you what's coming next, because for you, the day Verbal Diorama graced your podcast app was the most important day of your life. But for me, it was Tuesday. The next episode is on the history and legacy of Street Fighter and the final theatrical performance of the late, great Raul Julia and the first appearance of Jean-Claude Van Damme on this podcast. He's been mentioned before in alternate castings and things like that, but this is the first time a movie of his has actually appeared on this podcast. The Muscles from Brussels has arrived. So join me next week for the history and legacy of Street Fighter. I cannot wait. And as always, if you do enjoy listening to this podcast and you have a little bit of money to spare, you can help this podcast grow by supporting this podcast financially. You are under no obligation to do so. However, it would be gratefully appreciated. You can go to verbaldiorama.com tips to give a one-off tip, or you can sign up to the Patreon at verbaldiorama.com Patreon, and you can join the amazing patrons of Verbal Diorama. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Stuart, Nicholas, So, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip and Michelle. I do not doubt their commitment to Sparkle Motion. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. You can email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can pop to my website, which is verbaldiorama.com, and you can say hi, you can give me feedback, or you can give me suggestions as well. You can also do that by getting in touch with me on social media as well. You can also find little bits that I do over at filmstories.co.uk, and you can also help support the Film Stories project there as well. And finally... Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, how much are they paying you to be here? Excuse me? <laughs> what is your name, son? Gerald. Well, Gerald, I think you're afraid. Are you telling us this stuff so we can buy your book? Because I gotta tell you, if you are, that was some of the worst advice I ever heard. Oh. You see how sad this is? I want your sister to lose weight, tell her to get off the couch, stop eating Twinkies, and maybe go out for field hockey. You know what? No one ever knows what they want to be when they grow up. You know, it takes a little, little while to find that out, right, Jim? And you. Yeah, you. I'm seeing some jerk shoving your head down the toilet. Well, you know what? Maybe you should lift some weights or uh, take a karate lesson, and the next time he tries to do it, you kick him in the balls. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> do you see this? Right? This is an anger prisoner, a textbook exact prisoner. Do you see the fear of people? This boy is scared to death of the truth. Son, it breaks my heart to say this. But I believe you're a very troubled and confused young man. I believe you are searching for the answers in all the wrong places. You're right, actually. I am pretty, I'm, I'm pretty troubled and I'm, I'm pretty confused, but I, and I'm afraid, really, really afraid. Really afraid, but I, I, I think you're an antichrist. Oh. Oh.